Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there. The fact that you're listening to this right now means that you weren't scared away the first time we did this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So that's great. My name is Zach Twomley. This is When Diplomacy Fails, and you're about to listen to an episode from, well, from our back catalogue, sort of, but something which you've never really heard before, because it used to be locked behind a Patreon paywall, so you weren't able to access it. Because it's Christmas, though, because I'm spreading the Christmas history joy, I thought, what better way to, well, do that exact thing than to release this stuff for free in the podcast feed. This right here is an alternative history series where we asked what would happen if Gavrilo Princip missed. And I had so much fun with it and I can't wait to do alternative history things again. Hey, do you know what? Maybe if you'd like me to do alternative history things, you can support us on Patreon because currently the 2000 goal is that I will do an alternative history series on the Second World War. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then make sure to go on to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and support that goal. If you are interested, then that would be super appreciated. I love 
challenging myself and looking at things differently. And I love trying to imagine all those what-if questions that could have or might have happened. And you guys can be a really good part of that. Speaking of being a part of something special, have you heard of the delegation game? Once again, $6 a month, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. All you have to do is send me details about the person you want to send there, and I will do the rest. 21 people have already signed up, and I can hardly believe this because it's an idea I had over several days and I wasn't really sure if it would work. But my goodness, has it really caught on, and I cannot wait to interact with all of you wonderful nerds as we go further in the story. For six months, every single week, every single Friday it looks like, I will be narrating your exploits in this virtual Paris Peace Conference. Maybe we'll do better than those that were actually there 100 years ago, but either way you'll still have the Versailles Anniversary Project to listen to in case things really go off the rails, because it's entirely possible that they could. In any case, guys, this is parts 3 and 4 combined into one slightly chunky episode, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, then make sure to tell people about this, that we did an alternative history episode series, and that it was pretty fun. Alrighty, guys. Have a great time listening to this. Have a great, safe, fun, food-filled Christmas. And I will see you all, well, on the 26th of December, because we're doing this still, doing the on-this-day stuff. But I'll see you all, of course, soon. There could be no going back. René Viviani and Raymond Poincaré, as France's two leading men, had felt forced due to a combination of factors to intervene in the widening war on the side of Russia, as per the terms of the Franco-Russian Entente, which dated back to 1894. By declaring war on Germany and invading Alsace-Lorraine, Paris aimed at seizing the provinces stolen during the Franco-Prussian War which still boasted a pro-French populace. The declaration of war on the Austro-German bloc on the 8th of September gave France the opportunity to attack while said bloc was distracted with affairs in Russia and to a lesser extent Serbia, but it also had an unintended consequence. As per the terms of the Triple Alliance, it seemed likely that soon another party would have to enter the war against France, Italy. In Rome, there was a crisis. Debate had raged over late August and early September over the course of action that Italy should take. In recent accords signed with France, much of the tensions arising over colonial matters had been diffused, yet the latest developments and the fact that Britain and France were now at war with one another forced Italian politicians to take stock of the situation and consider very carefully their next move. If they engaged in war with Britain on the side of France, Italy would be seen to have violated its Triple Alliance agreements, while repercussions in the form of an Austro-German invasion could also be the result. At the same time though, if Italy waged war against France, then Rome would be fighting a war for no material gain for its own interests. There were no true irredentist claims on the southeast of France, as there had been on Austria's Tyrol region, while the Triple Alliance was comparatively unpopular amongst the Italian people because of that disputed region. 
So if Rome wished to inspire its citizens to fight the French and possibly the Russians, it would need some incentives. It was then, on the 10th of September 1914, that the Italian Premier Antonio Salandra received an urgent message from the British ambassador to Rome, Sir James Rennell Rod. With London seeing war with France as imminent, Rod had some information and offers for Salandra which he believed Italy might be interested in. Two days later, as we know, Britain's ultimatum ran out and she declared war on France on the 12th of September 1914. Those three days of negotiations from the 10th to the 12th of September involved intense lobbying and offering by Sir Rod, who was given authority by Sir Edward Grey back in London to induce the Italians onto Britain's side. Grey, it seemed, had no illusions about the disintegrating Anglo-French relationship, and he fully expected war to break out between London and Paris within days. To persuade the reluctant Salandra and his government to make war on France alongside Britain then, Rod was authorised to offer Italy vast swathes of French colonial Africa, as well as portions of the southeast of France should Italy desire it. Rod also made it plain that Italian ambitions with respect to portions of the Balkans and of the disputed Tyrol region would be looked into. With these carrots in hand, Salandra met with his king, Victor Emmanuel III, and picked his brains over what should be done. Salandra found his king eager to make up for past humiliations, particularly in Ethiopia. His king gave his permission for Salandra to sign the treaty with Britain, and promised to sign the treaty himself into law before the end of the month. Salandra was told to begin Italian mobilisation, and with that the Prime Minister returned to his colleagues and gave his assent to Rod's proposals. It was said that, so generous and beneficial to Italy were the bonuses promised, that Salander's pen shook with the pride of the Italian nation as he went to sign the treaty. By entering the war on the side of Britain, Italy would stand to become the second largest colonial power on the African continent, and would essentially inherit all of the French possessions in the north of Africa. With this treaty signed into law on the 13th of September, although it had not quite been signed into law just yet by the king, Italy began its process of mobilisation, and it received hearty telegrams from Austria and Germany promising aid and firm friendship. Kaiser Wilhelm was said to have been especially encouraged by Italy's loyalty to the Triple Alliance, as well as Britain's successful diplomacy, calling the news of Italy's decision, The greatest confirmation of my life. In Paris, of course, the news hit the French government like a bomb. It had nowhere been expected that Britain would move so fast in diplomacy. In addition, it had been taken for granted that Rome would hesitate and clamour for war against Austria for the sake of the disputed Tyrol region. By believing they had all the advantages, French diplomacy seemed to remain lax and non-committal with their Italian neighbour by early September, and as a result, the Italian ambassador to Paris, Tommaso Titoni, was instructed by his government to hand Viviani the news that Italy would be declaring war on France by the end of September, once Victor Emmanuel III had signed the treaty into law. Controversy remains to this day whether the deeply pro-French Titoni was actually authorised to inform Paris about this development so early and before Italy was properly prepared. In other words, was it the case that his pro-French sentiments compelled him to inform the French about Italy's decision earlier than Rome intended? Well, whatever the circumstances, France thus understood that it would have to divert troops to the Italian border, 
even as its invasion of Alsace-Lorraine was proceeding apace. The declaration was officially made, but by France rather than Italy on the 15th of September 1914. Now at war with Britain, Germany, Austria and Italy, French security depended on the Balkan front, where Serbia continued to hold its own against beleaguered Bulgarian, Greek and Albanian troops, and of course in Russia, where, unfortunately for Paris, it was learned that a stunning victory near Tannenberg had been achieved by the Germans, under Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff on the 12th of September. Worst news. Worst news was to come. On the day that war was declared between Britain and France, a bomb was set off in a crowded Brussels square. It was later attributed to an extremist French member of the League of Patriots, a right-wing proto-fascist group which had been banned in years past by the French government. There was much hasty condemnation in Paris as Viviani and Poincaré attempted furiously to defuse the situation, but Belgian anger had been stoked. The League of Patriots, which harboured deep-seated revanchist ambitions against Germany for its occupation of Alsace-Lorraine in 1870, had reportedly acted on the instruction of a member of the French government. In years past, such a suspicion would never have motivated governments to act on such scant evidence, but in light of the widely publicised scandal ongoing in Serbia, where governmental culpability in the attempted assassination of Franz Ferdinand had toppled the premiership of Nikola Pesic, tensions and tempers were running at a fever pitch. Believing that the Patriot League member had greater connections than he perhaps did, Brussels cut diplomatic ties with France over the perceived lack of tact on the part of the French ambassador to Belgium, who had infamously attempted to blame the bomb attack on a German immigrant before full details were learned. When the Frenchman in question was arrested and his true identity discovered, there was much embarrassment on the part of said ambassador, and within the Belgian government, there was much suspicion that the whole exercise had been engineered to make the Belgians look upon their German neighbours as enemies. The Belgian king, Albert I, loudly criticised the heinous act of the League member, whose attack killed in excess of 100 people as they packed the busy shopping square of a Brussels market. With his people's passions stoked, Albert instructed the government to mobilise the Belgian army and allow the passage of British and German troops, if they so desired. When this order was learned of, Paris cut all ties and declared war against Belgium on the 16th of September. While for Paris, this declaration, the last leading up to the Great War with its now hostile neighbours, seemed to spell disaster, across the Channel the move came at just the right time, and may even have saved Britain's war effort altogether. While to his enemies he was a picture of strength, in reality Sir Edward Grey was close to breaking point. In the space of a few months, his life's work in foreign policy had disintegrated to such an extent that Britain now engaged in a war which he had never wanted. As he conversed with his colleagues during a hastily convened cabinet meeting on the 10th of September, Grey continued to urge caution. War, Grey insisted, would be of no benefit for Britain if it was waged against France. But Grey was overruled. The sight of Grey sinking into his chair in despair when it was decided to hand Paris the ultimatum on the 11th of September 1914 was too much for David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, to bear. Sir Edward took it very deeply, 
Lloyd George later wrote in his war memoirs, published after the war in late 1915. The experience of the last few months had profoundly wounded him and he confessed himself unable to continue on in his office if this was to be the determined foreign policy course. Gray was begged to stay on, but he could only be persuaded to stay until the end of the month to allow time for a replacement to be found. The position of foreign secretary was obviously a critical one at such a pivotal time, and George V was said to have been furious when he learned of Gray's plans to abdicate his post. Gray softened the blow by promising to stay on in another sphere to solve the Irish crisis, which had developed since the last Buckingham conference had failed in late July. He remained active in his position nonetheless, though much of his orders would be signed off by his underlings, including, it was said, the declaration of war on France itself, which Gray supposedly could not bring himself to sign. The Italian option was also successfully courted, some historians attest, by an underling as well, but this act at least insulated British possessions in Africa from an ambitious French advance in that sphere. It was then, while he reflected on where it had all gone wrong, in the early evening of the 16th of September 1914, that he received the news. France had just declared war on Belgium. In the context of the Great War, the Irish crisis formed but one troubling tale amidst a host of others. Yet for Britain, it very nearly prevented her from going to war, and it thus remains a highly significant and much studied aspect of the period. The Irish crisis revolved around the government's inability to appease both factions on the island of Ireland. One of these was the Nationalists, eagerly anticipating Home Rule after the third Home Rule Bill had been passed in Westminster in the previous year. The other group were the Unionists, who remained bitterly opposed to any semblance of Home Rule, which would have entailed the inception of a parliament from Dublin, tasked with working through Irish affairs on the whole of the island. In the shadow of the worsening international situation, did London attempt to reach some kind of compromise between the two camps over the summer of 1914, but when no solution seemed forthcoming, it appeared as though a civil war, perhaps across the entirety of the British Isles, would be the result. In previous years, militarised factions in support of the Unionists and Nationalists emerged, determined to fight for what each side believed were its threatened interests on the island. If London could not work out some sort of solution soon, it seemed certain that these parliamentary groups would take matters into their own hands. For Sir Edward Grey, tasked with working alongside the Irish leaders, the King and the Prime Minister during the course of the Irish conferences, Ireland resembled just another headache amongst a sea of pre-existing headaches, and he was becoming convinced that a peaceful solution was leaving his grasp. So it was that by early August, Grey had liaised with his peers and arrived at the decision that, for the sake of Irish integrity and security, Britain would send soldiers to Ireland to keep the peace. The Nationalists balked at this news, which was leaked out prematurely on the 9th of August 1914. Horrified at the prospect of the British soldiery teaming up with their Unionist comrades, there was much unease as the first boats of British soldiers began to land along the island, at places like Kingstown in South Dublin and in Belfast to the north. As negotiations continued in London, all had been present when it was learned on the 15th of August that Serbia had invaded Bulgaria and that Russian troops were rumoured to be en route. All remained present in an effort to defuse the pressing Irish issues almost in defiance of the worsening international situation 
outside the walls of the conference. Eventually, when news of the Austro-German declaration of war on Russia was learned of, those present at the meeting accepted that matters abroad had become too grave. It was then that all were informed of the Gallipoli crime, when the ships constructed in British dockyards and paid for by the Ottomans had been destroyed by the Russians as they passed through the Dardanelles Straits, en route to the Ottoman Black Sea Fleet. The news aroused the passions of those present, and John Redmond, Irish MP and representative of the Nationalists, promised the support of his Nationalist friends in the event of a British crisis, as did Edward Carson, Redmond's Unionist opponent. For a brief time, it seemed, these two Irish political titans had something in common, and Carson was said to have been impressed with Redmond's insistence on guaranteeing Nationalist loyalty as soon as was permissible. Such unity boded well for Britain in this chaotic time, and even better chances to unify came a week later. When it was learned that France had declared war on Belgium on the 16th of September 1914, Redmond returned home to Ireland, to his native county of Wexford, and made an impassioned speech in its square to those present. Advertised in advance, some 200,000 citizens crammed the town, coming from all corners of the country to hear Redmond speak on the 18th of September 1914. It was here, historians would later attest, that the plea for a show of loyalty and honour which would only serve to unite the history, traditions and memory of Ireland was enthusiastically put forward. Those citizens who would come to hear Redmond speak were watched nervously by the assembled British soldiers still in Ireland since arriving in August. Redmond urged those of able body to fight for Belgium, which had recently been attacked by France. The example of Belgium, its size, Catholic populace and vulnerability in the face of a French advance, tugged perfectly at the heartstrings of those who had assembled. Thus successful in his urgings, Redmond praised his Unionist opponent for following the same course and insisted that this exercise would increase amity between the two pillars of Ireland. So numerous were the initial applicants and volunteers that Britain struggled to process them all. Ever since its declaration of war against France on the 12th of September, the government had found it immensely difficult to discern the best method for bringing the fight to France. Yet with the Italian front now open and the Belgian right of access given, it seemed certain that a British force, named the British Expeditionary Force, would be sent to the continent to aid the Belgians, with German military aid reportedly incoming as well. On the other side of Europe, with their invasion through Bulgaria and with Romanian support, the Russian advance into the Balkans seemed unstoppable by mid-September. Occupying Sofia and providing much-needed support to the Serbs, an ambitious three-pronged invasion of the region was orchestrated by the Russian High Command, designed to reinforce Serbia, push back Austria, hold the Ottomans and consolidate the Balkan interests of the Russo-Serb-Romanian alliance. This grouping, coupled with the now-surrounded France, has been given several names by historians, though the Entente is normally settled upon, while in the case of Germany, Austria, Italy and Britain, the Allies is generally the designation used. Though the Ottoman Empire was technically a member of the Allies, as was Greece, both powers would become non-entities relatively quickly in the initial phases of the war, so their contribution is not normally investigated as heavily as the other powers. It quickly became apparent that it was within the Balkan theatre that the most gains were possible for the Russian advance, 
and mobile war, in contrast to the increasingly static Russo-German border, soon became the order of the day. Russian armies advanced into Thrace, Macedonia, and then into Greece, where, between mid-September and early October, the Greek state collapsed in on itself amidst much division. Greece remained plagued by its intensely divided parties, one of whom, led by the king, argued for war on the side of Germany, while the other, led by the prime minister, pushed for peace with Serbia and war with the Ottomans. The population followed one party or the other, but in the face of a buckling front and the loss of Thessalonica to the Russians, Athens seemed to disintegrate. The Greek king, Constantine I, fled to Italy, and a pro-Serb, anti-Ottoman government was established by mid-October. By the end of October, this government declared war on the Turks in revenge, it was said, for the Greek loss during the Greco-Turkish War of 1897. With the Greek front stabilised then, and Ottoman forces hesitant to deploy outside of the Bosphorus for fear of leaving Constantinople vulnerable to the anticipated Russian attack, it seemed as though, by the end of October 1914, that the Russian hold across the entirety of the Balkans was secure. Immense pressure was now brought to bear on Vienna, as the Serbs joined with their Russian and Romanian brethren to steal a march on the Habsburg capital. Faced with such a scene, it quickly became necessary for the recently victorious Germans to redirect their own forces down south to aid their Austrian ally. Due to the primacy of the Balkans to the Russian war effort, it was suspected in Berlin that St. Petersburg was merely drawing the Germans deeper into the Russian interior to weaken their power elsewhere. The decision was thus made in Germany amidst the evidently dire situation to make use of the Polish threat to Russia. Engaging in some tactical manipulation of the Poles, German forces were instructed to invade Russian Poland and rouse the population there against their Russian masters through the use of propaganda and promises of sovereignty. By so doing, it was hoped, Russia would be made more vulnerable in its border areas, and thus Germany would require less troops to effect a successful invasion of the Tsar's sprawling empire. The disadvantages of the German position were made plain when a Russian counterattack, in the absence of the redeployed Ludendorff and Hindenburg, left East Prussia vulnerable once again. It was then that the Kaiser made one of the most incredible moves of his reign. Understanding the universal threat which Russian power posed to Scandinavia and German interests there, Wilhelm urged the German ambassadors in Sweden and Denmark to effect a coalition against Russian power there and enter the war against Russia alongside Germany. By proposing this new front, German agents also promised the Finns a nation-state of their own and committed soldiers to defend this new winter front if only the Swedes, Danes and Finns would join their Nordic-German brethren against the Russian Slav. The work was undertaken by Arthur Zimmermann, a rising star in the German Foreign Office, an eventual foreign minister of a peacetime German Empire. Coming off the recent victory at Tannenberg, these diplomatic efforts had the effect of rousing the Scandinavians against St. Petersburg, but Berlin would likely have been unsuccessful in its schemes had the Russians not acted first. On the 1st of October, as the Russians occupied the Balkans, the Germans stirred up Poland and East Prussia mobilised all men at its disposal, the Balkan Sea became host to an event which has since become immortalised in Swedish national history. King Gustav of Sweden remained hesitant to commit his kingdom to war with Russia without due cause, 
as he was unsure of whether his population would support the war, even considering their apparently emotional identification with the Anglo-German war effort. It was only once he sent out Sweden's latest dreadnought, one of only three in Sweden's naval arsenal, that affairs began to heat up in the now crowded Baltic Sea. This new dreadnought, the King Karl XII, named after Charles XII of Sweden, who had in fact lost the Battle of Poltava to Peter the Great in 1709, effectively ending Swedish aspirations to empire in the face of Russian competition, had been planned for some time, and was launched on the 28th of September 1914 to much Swedish fanfare and national pride. Its official duty was to guard neutral shipping, but after only one day at sea on the 30th of September, it received a signal from a Russian dreadnought. The Karl signalled back that it was a neutral vessel, but the admiral on board the Karl later recalled that at this, the Russian vessel fired a warning shot. Cabling to Stockholm on the situation, the Karl was ordered to defuse the situation by simply returning home, but as it turned to do so, the Russian vessel fired another shot, this one plainly intended to do damage. The shot missed, and the Karl's crew scrambled to cable home and develop a response. In the time it took for an answer, the Russian ship could fire again, and this time it may not miss. Thus the Swedish admiral himself, called Karl, fired a warning shot. Three minutes later, the Russians fired again, this time directly striking the Karl, killing the admiral, Karl, on board, and sending the vessel into immediate emergency defensive measures. Cables were sent home to Stockholm urgently requesting reinforcement and informing the government of what had just occurred. The clock had just struck midnight. It was now the 1st of October, and Russia had just committed its first act of war against its Swedish neighbour. With Sweden's king backed into a corner, much was made of the Karl's attempts to resist the Russian vessel. Reportedly, its crew had engaged with the Russians for four full hours before it became so badly damaged that their ships began to sink. From the distance, they could see that the Russian vessel had also sent its emergency signals. Their Russian enemy was sinking too. Limping back to the nearest port at Kalmar, it was discovered that the Russian vessel had sunk. The Swedish dreadnought, then, had technically defeated its Russian opponent. Not only that, but... As King Gustav and the international media would soon report, the ghosts of Sweden's past had returned. Charles Twelfth, it was said, had defeated Russia after all. At this, Sweden was quickly enamoured by the story and of the Russian belligerence, and Stockholm declared war on Russia on the 4th of October 1914. Historians have come to term this Russo-Swedish war as King Charles's war, mostly due to the symbolic presence of the dreadnought Karl XII, and the deep history that the incident with the Russian vessel harked back to. With Denmark now blocking the sound to Russian shipping, St. Petersburg seemed in dire straits, and indeed a Swedish-German offensive plan tasked with seizing the Russian capital was now put into motion. With the sound blocked to the French as well, the Germans would now have a great opportunity to defeat the Russians at sea in this critical sphere. In a naval battle fraught with risk and significance, the Germans and their Swedish allies won the Battle of Gotland on the 28th of October 1914, 
massively weighting the naval balance of power towards Germany and the Baltic, and leaving St. Petersburg virtually open in the process to naval attack. Thus maintaining a blockade of the seas around the Russian capital, the East Prussian threat was reduced as Russia withdrew some soldiers back north to defend its capital from future incursions. Meanwhile in the Balkans, the front stabilised as Austria repelled the Russo-Serb advance during the so-called Push from Vienna on the 3rd of November. After which, Habsburg forces pushed back the enemy and settled in for the first winter of the war amidst blinding snowstorms, which seemed to paralyse the Balkan front altogether until January 1915. Thus the war was by no means proceeding totally in favour of Russia, though the Balkans remained a promising theatre there. Of far more concern to the Tsar was the state of France and her efforts to take the fight to the enemy during her war experience. In the next episode, we will conclude our examination of the war with an analysis of the doomed French struggle and how it contributed to the eventual victory of the Allies in summer 1915. First, British troops were landed in Belgium in the last week of September 1914, and before long, Belgium could boast a British expeditionary force of 80,000 men to help reinforce its border with France. It remained to be seen whether German aid would be forthcoming, as the Germans were said to be expending much of their resources along the Rhine, as the situation in Alsace-Lorraine became acute. Thus, London expected to rely mostly upon the Italians down south, and their newly acquired Belgian allies to achieve successes on land, though it was at sea that the greatest triumph of all occurred for Britain. With the French fleet advancing past the Bay of Biscay and then the northern coast of France towards the Channel, tensions had ensured that the French attack on a British vessel would then touch off the Anglo-French War from the 12th of September. From that point did the French and British fleets manoeuvre into position around one another, seeking to gain the best tactical advantage. The impetus for gaining some sort of benefit was most pressing for the French, who faced a British fleet nearly twice their size. To offset this disparity in numbers, the French Admiral sought to trick his counterpart and force the fleets to divide, which actually proved successful on the 1st of October, when one British fleet sailed towards Brest, and another remained behind to guard the channel. It was then reported that the French had been spotted off the west coast of Ireland, and a great panic ensued in London, as it was feared that the French planned a landing in Ireland to effect an insurrection there, as had been planned a century before. The French were not seeking to provoke a rebellion, however. They were instead attempting to draw the contingent of the Royal Navy, intended for Brest, further away from its reinforcements. When suitably far enough from aid, the French attacked aggressively on the 6th of October 1914. The fate of British naval security seemed to hang in the balance. Since termed the Battle of Mayo due to its proximity to that Irish town on the west coast, 
and to the grisly tendency of the casualties to wash up there over the months following the battle, it was an unmitigated disaster for the French, who proved terminally unable of defeating their British counterpart at sea. Over the space of five hours, the British damaged or destroyed every French vessel bar two dreadnoughts, out of an original French count of six dreadnoughts, seven heavy cruisers, and eight light cruisers. The British lost just two light cruisers, in what some naval historians have deemed the most lopsided naval battle in history. It caused jubilation in Britain and utter depression in Paris. It also meant that the French coasts were now open to Britain's overwhelming naval superiority, and there could be no question of Russia being reinforced at sea either. Worse news was yet to come. Not content to wait for the French to attack, following minimal action along the Franco-Belgian border, an Anglo-Belgian force of 100,000 invaded France, with the aim of reaching the Somme by the end of October. In the event, when news reached Paris of the loss of the Battle of Mayo, immense self-doubt began to permeate the French government. Poincaré and Viviani urged unity, but were essentially on borrowed time. This borrowed time would run out when a number of Allied successes were learned of throughout October. Punctuated by the loss at sea in early October, a massive Italian attack on Tunisia and into Algeria proved disastrous for the French colonial strategy. Aided as they had been by the British Mediterranean fleet, who had shipped the Italians over to North Africa, as per the terms of their alliance in mid-September, the Italians boasted overwhelming numerical superiority, in addition to the British naval support, and they overwhelmed the near entirety of French defences on the border, of and then up to Tunisia. Much symbolic posturing took place as the Italians visited the ruins of Carthage, and in the process took some of the most iconic photographs of the Great War to send back home. Symbolism proved to be essential to the Allied war effort, and the image of Italian soldiers bringing Rome to the Phoenicians, as the Times put it, was a huge boon to the Italian reputation. The previously shattering experience in Ethiopia, it seemed, had been forgotten, and with no French fleet in the region on the 12th of October, Italian forces occupied the entirety of Tunisia with British naval aid. The next stop, it seemed, was Algeria. With France under threat in its colonies, Viviani and Poincaré now came under further criticism for permitting the transferal of hundreds of thousands of colonial troops into France, which had the effect of leaving the French colonial sphere far more vulnerable than was deemed acceptable. The French government argued that the homeland was the priority, but... Such was the popularity of the two French leaders by this point that the move was transformed into a scandal by the now-growing peace party, led by the socialist Jean Jaurès. Jaurès had already made contact with his Italian and German socialist allies, and in the closing days of peace had attempted to rally like-minded citizens of Europe together to oppose any rush to war. But he and his party had been overruled, escaping assassination on numerous occasions, thanks to a well-timed illness which kept him bedridden for much of early autumn. Jaurès did not cease with his correspondence, though, and his letters to foreign capitals in the name of a proud and free France, as he called it, make today for some incredible reading. Blaming his political rivals Poincaré and Viviani for the war and for French isolation, Jaurès's invective only became more acidic as French fortunes in the war worsened. 
If the colonial situation was bad and the Mediterranean situation at sea seemed hopeless, then the French government at least attempted to take solace in the invasion of Alsace-Lorraine. Yet by mid-October 1914 it was clear that, once showing greatly positive signs, was buckling under the combined pressures of enemy incursions to the north and south. Only halted at the Somme River on the 23rd of October, French forces hastily established a defensive line, constructed and manned mostly by the crack troops of the French army, as these men were essentially all that stood between the Allies and Paris. Under such desperate straits it was necessary to divert the troops away from the Italian fronts and that of the Rhine, where the once emboldened French commanders there, so fond of the offensive, were instructed to hold the line and rely on sprawling fortifications, such as that found at Verdun which would block the Germans, or a series of more sporadically organised forts in the Alps, which would block the Italians. Facing such intense pressure on these three fronts, it was perhaps only a matter of time before the French government cracked. Poincaré and Viviani continued to urge bitter resistance to the invader, to the end if necessary, but when Anglo-Belgian forces broke through the Somme lines, it appeared as though Paris must fall to the invader. The Belgians remained behind to reinforce their border with France, leaving the British expeditionary force to advance alone. Since landing in Belgium at the end of September, the British soldiers had made rapid progress and arguably given the most impressive showing of all the parties involved. By early October, British troops had landed and captured critical ports on the north of France, and by the middle of October, this line of British and Empire soldiers, including the eager Irish soldiery determined to defend Belgian honour, landed and seized the entirety of the northern French coastline, from Normandy to Brittany to everything else besides. These forces were then able to link up with the British and Belgian forces as they advanced along the Somme lines, with the result that by the end of the month of October, Paris seemed hemmed in on all sides. In early November 1914, in response to the worsening situation, Poincaré implemented an order for the levée en masse, ordering every male French citizen to arms. By doing so, France had become the first state to engage in total war, and the French example here, though the experience lasted for barely two months before a peace was signed, is often examined as a case study of what might have been had total war been allowed to persist in the modern world. As it was, the order is now seen as a final, desperate act of a dying regime. But whether the two French leaders in Poincaré and Viviani appreciated that France needed to make peace with its neighbours, events would soon compel such agreements to be made. As it was learned on the 15th of November that the Germans had broken through and outmaneuvered the French along the Rhine, mostly avoiding Verdun in an effort to rush to Paris. The German advance to Paris was complemented by a British advance in the same direction from the north. Under these circumstances, great debates were held in the French chamber, as Poincaré argued passionately for a continuation of the war and for the transferal of the French government behind a better defended headquarters. After three days worth of debates, Poincaré and Viviani were overruled. By the 22nd of November 1914 it was declared... France had had enough. The levee in mass had been the last straw for many Frenchmen, who did not feel there was anything to be gained from waging a war against the British. As far back as August 1914, 
Jean Jaurès had held mass rallies in Paris, urging socialists from all nations to come together for peace, and his urgings had an evident effect. By the time the war was actually declared on Germany, France was in the throes of an unpopular military law, which scraped the barrel of French manpower and which many viewed as economically and demographically unsustainable. Having reached the peak of military competition with Germany in times of peace, Jaurès had insisted that the time had come for every French citizen to reach into his heart and discover the true essence of what it means to be French. This could be achieved, Jaurès claimed, by abandoning the petty jealousies of the past and standing up to the outdated policies of Raymond Poincaré, whose governments only succeeded in increasing tensions between the French and German states. Now, many months later, it seemed as though Jaurès's message was beginning to seep back in the French political sphere again after a long period of blind, patriotic commitment. Jaurès, speaking in the chamber and recovering from his illness, would later be painted in this scene, boldly standing up to the belligerent policies of Poincaré and making impassioned pleas to the effect that there was a better way for France. Make peace, Jaurès insisted, and the sons and grandsons of the Republic would thank you for it in the future. Failed to do so, and such descendants would never see the light of day. In an extract of one of his most memorable speeches to the chamber, Jaurès declared on the 21st of November 1914 that it is not the end of the French preponderance for greatness. Jaurès continued, Such things can never be snuffed out no matter the war, the defeat, or the cost. Instead, it is the end of illusion, of the illusion that through war one can solve the complex rivalries of a continent, or through arms one's nation can be saved. Enough, we say. It is time to make peace. Peace is what we want for our families, for our futures, for our nation. Peace is what we need, and peace is what we must get. Later deemed the peace speech and depicted in countless paintings after the event, Jaurès's words would capture the hearts and minds of the French people, weary from a hopeless war and unable to see a positive end in sight. Jaurès could afford to be so positive because he well understood the complex political realities of the day. Indeed, Jaurès had been in close contact with the new British Foreign Secretary Richard Haldane, and words had been spoken to the effect that a peace deal in anticipation of the imminent French collapse was underway. Debated and agreed with by the Anglo-German-Belgian-Italian allies, with Austrian deputies too preoccupied to attend themselves, the so-called Small Paris Conference on the 26th of November took place to decide conclusively on the series of ideas floating around on what to do with France. It took place in wartime Paris and was attended by Poincaré, but also at the behest of the allies, Jean Jaurès, who now led the peace movement in France. It should be added that a general ceasefire up and down the line had endured since the 14th of November, wherein the initial shocking breakthroughs in early November had forced the government to arrange for temporary peace measures, as both sides consolidated their positions. A few days later, on the 22nd of November, as we saw, Poincaré had been overruled, and the decision to make peace with the Allies seemed to be the decision for France going forward. 
Jaurès followed along, ostensibly because he was said to know the Allies better than Poincaré, and be able to get better deals out of Germany, but in reality, Poincaré believed, because Jaurès was positioning himself to succeed him once his own government resigned, which it was expected would happen once the final peace with the Allies was signed. As the Allies negotiated with their French enemy from the 25th of November, a few issues became immediately clear. First, the point that Alsace-Lorraine remained an intense sticking point to France. Second, that Paris could not hope to retain all the colonies it lost during the war, most particularly to Italy, who, with the help of Britain, had seized virtually all of North Africa and portions of the interior owned by France. Third, France would have to repudiate its Russian alliance, but it would not be forced to make war against St. Petersburg. Fourth, no French territory would be taken, and the Allies would pay compensation for any damage they inflicted upon French lands or towns. Italy assented to this, since becoming far more interested with Italian possessions rather than southeast French ones. Fifth, it was declared that France had to pay a war indemnity to Germany of an undisclosed size, reflecting the fact that, because she declared war on Berlin, she had placed Germans in mortal danger in this two-front war, and thus she should be forced to compensate them. The German representative at the small Paris conference wanted to go much further, but tolerance and mediation was the order of the day, by words put forward by the British representative there, who didn't want a further revanchist spirit to be inculcated in the French psyche. With the war still raging against Russia and her allies, there could be no question of a humiliated France coming back into the war at just the wrong time. Paris was granted its liberty and sovereignty, and normal diplomatic ties were arranged to be established once the official peace treaty became law on the 1st of January, 1915. The actual terms of the peace treaty, named the Treaty of Versailles, as it was signed into law by the French president on the 13th of December 1914, in that palace where Germany had once defeated France and begun its process of humiliation. Poincaré, a broken man by this point, resigned the following day on the 14th of December, and withdrew from the public eye to write his memoirs over the following years. These memoirs would stand as the answer to his critics, but Poincaré never stood for office again, and he died a broken man in 1918. Before he died, Poincaré would at least have seen his homeland return to France. As part of the Treaty of Versailles, in its final form, Britain managed to persuade the German representative to pose an interesting compromise to his government in Berlin. Since the major sticking point in Paris continued to be Alsace-Lorraine, Herbert Asquith's government reasoned that to return this possession would restore the peace to Western Europe and essentially ensure that a lasting peace took hold on the continent. Without the Franco-German rivalry, in other words, Europeans could focus on more tangible things like improving the economic stability of their states and reducing tariffs on traded goods. In return for this concession, Britain signaled that it would support the extensive German claims on Russia, and that it was also support the German efforts to establish a Middle Europa Economic and Customs Union of States, including Austria, Sweden, portions of the Balkans and the Low Countries, if they wished to join. This German war aim of Middle Europa had been 
developed upon the outbreak of war with France, and while it had originally been designed to exclude France economically from the continent's affairs, just as Otto von Bismarck had once excluded France diplomatically from them, the supreme effort of the British government had the effect of easing the stipulations of the whole arrangement. France, it was decided, would be allowed to join and partake in this economic union developed and directed from Berlin, but the whole process would be made more democratic and the French would have a stake in how it operated. Easing tensions in Europe was made possible thanks in part to the great gains British arms had made in both Africa and Asia. In return for Britain's agreement to grant Indochina back to France, which itself had been taken in a quick campaign in mid-October 1914, Paris would accede to the widespread parceling up of her African colonial domains. Parts of this pie were to go to Britain's Italian ally, of course, but large swathes of the southern part of the continent were also to go to Germany. In return for this deal, and amidst feverish scenes of optimism and cooperation between the Anglo-German representatives, it was agreed to cede Alsace-Lorraine back to France within two years. The Germans would use that time, it would later transpire, to destroy all available military institutions there. But by the time the French did march back into the region in January 1917, amidst joyous scenes and intense national jubilation, the spirit of antagonism within France towards Germany was effectively gone. Jean Jaurès, the socialist president of France at this point, effected a sharp decrease in funding for the French army in return for military guarantees from Germany, Britain, Italy and the Low Countries, and thus these funds were redirected into the French economy and infrastructure, which itself brought about a post-war boom and scenes of intense national pride in what should have been, by virtue of their military loss to the Allies, an immensely depressing period of French history, had instead been turned around. Today the statue in Berlin of Kaiser Wilhelm II celebrating his exploits for peace, in fact points towards the ceded provinces, demonstrating the affinity that ruler had for peace, and how he viewed it as preferable over the continuation of a ruinous and pointless rivalry. Historians have since come to term the period of immense economic growth and prosperity which turbocharged the continent and greatly aided Germany's Mitteleuropa project in years ahead as the miracle on the Marne so-called because of Jaurès's visit to that region after the British left, and his symbolic planting of a British flag there as a monument to the dead. Never again, Jaurès said, would France embark upon a war with questionable goals and against such powerful enemies. Now she was to distinguish herself as the economic superpower, the shining furnace, as he called it, at the heart of Europe. Today, France is an integral part of Middle Europa, a project which had come on leaps and bounds since Germany's official inception of it in January 1916. Although a referendum is approaching where British citizens will be able to vote to leave or remain within the Middle Europa bloc, such facts should not alarm the listener. While it is true that some analysts fear that Britain may soon leave Middle Europa, the general consensus is that the British people would never vote to abandon and disrupt something so beneficial and important to the current world order. The reason why the French example has so impressed economic and political historians 
is due to the contrast it provides for the Russian case. Though initially resisting the combined forces of the Allies relatively well by the end of 1914, with the Balkans and Greece occupied, the Dardanelles threatened more directly than ever before and the Austrians under siege, the following year of 1915 would prove decisive. Above all, the ill-advised Russian effort to seize the Dardanelles in a costly and bloody Gallipoli campaign gave the British much pause for thought as they moved their fleet into position to destroy their Russian counterparts as the battle was waged over the course of February to April 1915. This offensive, combined with the loss of the Russian fleet mere metres from where the earlier Gallipoli crime took place, was a symbolic event in British and Russian naval history and the former's naval reputation, following on from the Battle of Mayo the previous year, was undeniably supreme. The British were then given permission by the Ottomans to sail up the straits and attack the remainder of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Thus destroyed, the Russians were at a distinct disadvantage in their home territory, and with further British naval landings planned, Russian security seemed in severe jeopardy. In tandem with these offensive losses, Austro-German offensives into Russian Poland and then the Ukraine pushed the Russians back yet further, while German-Swedish offensives against St. Petersburg piled on additional pressure. In the aftermath of the failed Gallipoli campaign with the loss or imprisonment of all the vessels and the nearly 200,000 men that the move required, the opportunity was seized as a German-Swedish naval bombardment of the Russian capital was twinned with a massive German offensive on land, with the central goal of seizing the Russian capital and forcing Russia out of the war. Thanks to the previous Treaty of Versailles, more German soldiers were available to strike into Russia, and this unified attention of the German High Command proved the difference. On the 24th of May 1915, after a long and bloody siege, making use of Swedish, German, Finnish and British soldiers and auxiliaries, St. Petersburg finally fell to the Allies. With this, the Russian centre collapsed and an Austrian counter-attack through the Balkans, led energetically by the hero of Sarajevo, Governor Potcherek, shattered the Russian and Serb presence there and enabled Austro-German forces to advance right up to the outskirts of Serbia. Greece was fully liberated on the 16th of June and King Constantine I was able to return from Italy, while Bulgaria was liberated itself on the 30th of June, and Tsar Ferdinand returned home from Constantinople. Serbia was essentially occupied to the end of the war, and Milenko Veznic's government were placed under house arrest in the meantime. For the final push into Russia to take place on the 1st of July 1915, the British would land in the Crimea as had been done before, but this time with far better coordination. The Ottomans would battle through the Caucasus and into Russian Armenia and Georgia. An Austro-Bulgarian force would attack through Romania. An Anglo-German-Swedish force would attack down from St. Petersburg. And a German central thrust through the Ukraine, bolstered by native soldiers tired of Russian rule, was also directed. This multi-pronged invasion ran into difficulties in some sectors, it had to be said, but by and large the overwhelming force brought to bear on the Russians was simply too much for the Tsar or his government to bear. Tsar Nicholas, amidst a collapsing domestic front and calls for his abdication, 
ordered his government to acquire a lasting peace, whatever the cost. Sergei Sazanov, Russian foreign minister to this point, took cyanide rather than accept the order, and his replacement immediately set to work salvaging the country and maintaining some semblance of order. A provisional armistice, which would prove permanent following the official peace treaty, would be implemented across the entire invasion line. By the 13th of August 1915, the Great War was over. So what did we think of that? If you're thinking right now that I could have gone far further with this scenario, I agree. But I feel it's right to park it for now, before I get even more carried away with this imaginative version of history than I already have. Seriously, there's so much you can do with things like these, so I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And if you are interested, I can always pick it up in the future and see how a post-war Russia got on or how it empowered Germany engaged in a Cold War with Britain for the remainder of the century. Or how an isolated United States, which we never even talked about, never saw any need to become involved in European affairs. Or how colonialism continued even more emboldened than before. Or... Yeah, you get the idea. What I really enjoyed about this exercise was creating a world by myself, which I tried to base as much as possible on the actual real-life circumstances of 1914. As much as I could, I tried to predict what would happen next in Europe, from what I knew about what the great powers were doing during that stressful time. Before we go then, I'd like to run down a few of these details now, some of which may surprise you. Gavrido Princip in our timeline was in fact equipped with a Belgian Fabrique Nationale semi-automatic 1910 model pistol, and I believe that considering his ill health and his general frailty, an average civilian wouldn't have found it unduly difficult to wrest the pistol off him. The presence of the Archduke should have meant that Sarajevo was better defended and patrolled than it in fact was, so the appearance of an armed policeman wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. Had such a serviceman actually been on the scene, where Franz Ferdinand was in fact assassinated, as he should have been, Princip may have been forced to expend his two shots into such an individual, or at least expend one of them, as in our alternative history scenario, rather than in the Archduke or his wife. This, of course, brings us to the unofficial star of the show, Governor Oskar Pacharek. Governor Pacharek did in fact exist, and he was the governor of Sarajevo, when Franz Ferdinand fell victim to Gavrido Princip's bullets. As you can imagine, though, by failing to protect his sovereign, Pacharek's career progressed very differently to our narrative, and that's likely the reason why you haven't heard of him, even though he did ride in the car, in the seat, in front of Franz Ferdinand and his wife. The It Is Nothing quip was, of course, a sneaky reference to the unfortunate Archduke's actual final words. I felt it was a fitting tribute to him and his place in history. Taking us back to events after the failed assassination, the Two Cousins dinner was obviously fictional. However, I did base the fiction upon the increasing trends of Anglo-German cooperation and the genuine efforts between Berlin and London to improve relations following the Balkan Wars, where Britain and Germany essentially policed that peace. Because of these trends and the increase in amity between the two empires, I felt it wasn't too far a stretch to imagine the two monarchs sitting down together. Two obvious problems with this scenario were the facts that Wilhelm and George didn't get on very well together, 
and that Wilhelm never would have been able to persuade von Malka to abandon the Schlieffen plan following this fictional meeting. This, of course, is why I had Maltke resigning in tears, tears which he very much did shed when the Kaiser tried to abandon the Schlieffen plan at the last moment, in our timeline in early August. However, Bethmann Halvig did want to improve relations, and Viscount Richard Haldane, who became our alternative foreign secretary, really did visit Germany in the twilight of the naval race in 1912. But then, as it was the case in our version of history, there was no success. The Congress in Vienna was, of course, false, though I thought it was quite fun to make light of the significance of the Congress of Vienna taking place a century before. Since Europeans like their centenaries, I thought that would make sense. If you listen to my July Crisis project to take this further, you'll know that Nikolai Hartwig did die of a heart attack while conversing with an Austrian diplomat in Belgrade, so I figured him dying under similarly stressful circumstances wouldn't have been too much of a stretch. The angle where Russia and Serbia blamed one another, of course, alluded to Serbia's attempts to blame Vienna in the original story for what happened to their beloved ambassador, though the plot to assassinate Franz Ferdinand genuinely did reach far up the board, including into Nikola Pesic's government, as he had signed off on a great deal of blackhand activities, as had Dragutin Dmitrievich, who was hanged in the alternative scenario, but who was actually executed in real life by firing squad on Pesic's orders in 1917. Perhaps because he knew too much? Continuing with Serbia, Milenko Vesnic did exist, and he was the former Serbian ambassador to France. He stood out to me in this story because of his avid pan-Slavist ideas, which he genuinely did write a PhD thesis on. I figured if anyone in an alternative scenario would bring such events about as the Vesnic-Sazanov letters, or VS letters, it would be him. Those letters, of course, are a play on the Willy Nicky telegrams, and the blank check that Sazanov promises Vesnich is a mirror event of that which was promised by Germany to Austria. The Russians are, as we probably know, really did meet the French president and his premier, though in real life, the French talked up their commitment to the Russians regarding the Balkans, and promised to support them in the case of Serbia. This was the end result of the Balkanization of the Franco-Russian Entente, which if you listen to that extra episode on the Balkan Wars and their impact on Eastern European foreign policy, you'll know about. Thus, if we were to be a fly on the wall in mid-July 1914, we would have seen the French reassuring the Russians over their commitments to the Serbs, rather than admonishing them to keep the Serbs on a leash, as my alternative scenario presents. The reason why I feel that the French would have talked to the Russians like this in this alternative scenario is, well, with the Serbs as persona non grata, it's entirely likely that the French would have been feeling the pinch themselves. The Bulgarian angle made sense to me as the Bulgarians were immensely troubled following their loss in the Second Balkan War. Not only that, but Russian policy had swung determinedly against Bulgaria after said war, pushing Bulgaria into the arms of Germany as a result, who really did form a series of economic agreements with Berlin over the early summer of 1914. Bulgaria would in fact fight on the side of the Central Powers during the First World War. The forgotten escalation of the year was the expected delivery in the Black Sea 
of two British-made dreadnoughts for the Ottomans to use. This would have upset the balance of power in that sea, and sent Russian planners into a tizzy in the months before. Events like the Lehman von Sanders mission in early 1914 heightened Russian tensions with its German neighbours. While don't forget, trial mobilizations had taken place at great expense within Russia, directed towards Vienna, who followed suit with a costly mobilization of her own in late 1912, early 1913. These events all led me to speculate on what would have happened had the Russians seen the Ottoman ships arrive en route to such a sensitive region. With Britain not at war with the Turks, there was no reason for London to hold these ships back from Ottoman hands, and thus I believe it's fair to speculate that the Russians would have acted preemptively against the new vessels, especially with my unique scenario booking Sazanov into a corner with his aggressive Bulgarian and Serbian policies. Alternative facts which belie the true fact that Russian policy in our time was becoming notably more aggressive by late 1913, reaching its apex by the following summer. The Balkan Wars had engineered this further aggression, so I felt it only right to tell a story of a war which grew from the Balkans just as it did in our timeline. French indecisiveness and their eventual siding with Russia reflected what I believed was inevitable by 1914. After so many years entwined in the same policy, France simply couldn't afford to abandon its Russian ally whatever policy the Russians adopted. Hence the balkanization of the Franco-Russian Entente, as France took on greater risks and accepted the unstable aspects of Russian policy, in return for what Poincaré believed were security guarantees that were worth the overall risk. Would Britain have delivered an ultimatum to Russia and then France, and could Germany have been persuaded to refrain from attacking the French, abandoning the Schlieven plan in the process? Maybe. If the whole process was given another five years or so after the failed assassination, I do believe that the anticipated changes in the international system in our timeline would have taken place. The problem was Europe didn't have the time, and the assassination forced the powers to cash in on alliances and agreements which weren't fully understood or agreed upon. The two players in the Italian aspect, Antonio Salandra and Sir Renal Rod, were real people and they did occupy the positions of Italian Premier and British Ambassador to Italy, respectively. In addition, the Triple Alliance did compel Italy to defend Germany if she were attacked by France. That had been the entire purpose of the alliance after all, so I feel it was only realistic to portray Rome weighing in against the French, even if that looks odd on paper. The British pressure and the very real danger Britain could have done to the Italian peninsula with her fleet in the Mediterranean, I believe would have proved the difference in persuading Italy to join the so-called Allies. Tannenberg, of course, had to make another showing, and when it came to rousing the Irish population, Belgium was too important to leave out. So it became a question of how and why the Belgians would position themselves against France, thereby giving Britain the propaganda boost she needed when she came to Belgium's defence. It should be said, the French League of Patriots were real, and however hard it seems to justify that far-right group bombing a Brussels shopping square, the Belgian government and monarchy's retaliation to open up their borders to Germany and Britain would definitely have incited a harsh French response, as their borders with Belgium were comparatively under-defended in summer 1914. Seeing his schemes collapse, I believe that Sir Edward Grey as Foreign Secretary would have resigned once he felt able, 
as an anti-German direction in policy was what he had engineered since coming to power in 1905, and thus he wouldn't have withstood such a different policy for so long. Greek divisions are well known in the context of the First World War. The Greek people remained mostly divided for the entire war as to who their support should be given to, with King Constantine eventually silenced as a pro-German sympathiser. Thus it makes sense, in our timeline, for him to flee when a pro-German policy becomes impossible. The Swedish angle, while tons of fun to develop, unfortunately has only bare specks of truth in it. King Gustav of Sweden was in fact approached by Arthur Zimmermann in 1915 for an alliance, but Gustav refrained from declaring either way, not because he particularly loved Russia, but because he required a casus belli for his people to enter the conflict, and in our world, he had yet to find one. The imaginary dreadnought, Karl XII, while a little ham-fisted, I'll admit, provided us with the provocation and national outcry which was required, and the Swedes gained national revenge for Poltava in the process, which, hey, what can I say, I really enjoyed writing about. The French collapse in this episode was more difficult to predict, though the centrality of Jean Jaurès in its development is clear to me. In our timeline, Jaurès was the alternative socialist candidate, the foiled to Poincaré and the advocate of a different policy with Germany as part of a socialist government. Unfortunately, Jaurès would be assassinated, on the eve of the First World War, shocking those in France, but his survival here means that instead of becoming a focus of rage for French patriots, he became a focus of identification and passion for those sick of a hopeless war. It is debatable whether the nationalistically charged France would in fact have surrendered, as it did, but by making the asking price low enough and by engaging in some incredible diplomacy geared towards ensuring a lasting peace, which... British statesmen certainly did want, Britain was able to effect a fundamental change in France that ensured Alsace-Lorraine returned to Paris and the Middle Europa project became the norm. The Middle Europa idea was put forward by the Germans in their initial war aims in our timeline and would essentially have looked like a much less democratic European Union, ruled from Berlin and with extensive economic underpinnings and regulations. Whether or not Germany would have been persuaded with enough colonial nuggets to give Alsace-Lorraine back to France in the name of the general peace is debatable, but I'm going to go with yes, because the Germans weren't stupid, and this was a perfect get-out-of-jail-free card, and Germany loved its colonies. And yes, that was a sly dig at Britain's recent decision to leave the European Union. I just couldn't resist, and whatever your feelings, I make no apologies. So that's it, history friends. Thanks again for listening, and if you have any more questions, would like to pose or debate some alternative histories of your own, or would just like to let me know in general what you thought of this thought experiment, be sure to let me know through the usual channels. Until then, my name is Zach. Thanks for listening, then. And I'll be seeing you all very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.